Welcome to the History and Physical, the official medical student podcast of In Training Magazine. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. What is it like being a superstar comedian in medicine, recovering from burnout, and starting a new model of healthcare delivery in Las Vegas? More importantly, what do Gangnam Style and Tupac Shakur have to do with medicine? I recently had a chance to sit down with Dr. Zubin Damanya, aka ZDog MD, a former Stanford hospitalist, comedian, and now co-founder of Turntable Health, a new revolution in healthcare delivery. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zamania. Uh, we'd like to welcome you as a very special guest because you're not only a physician, but you're also a YouTube star, an entrepreneur, and a self-titled turntable healthcare revolutionary. Um, so welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you, appreciate you taking some time. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Uh, a gangster's life ain't easy, you know? It, it, uh, you have to, you have to, you're constantly pimping. Oh, yeah. That's definitely for sure. Um, though you might not want to let your wife listen to this podcast, considering that now. <laughs> she, she, she knows me well enough to know that, uh, <laughs> that that's how I roll. Well, you heard it here first on the In Training podcast. Uh, but on more serious topics, I'd first like to congratulate you on being no- noted by NPR as one of the top um, commencement speakers in all history, really, or recorded history, at least. I don't know whether before recorded history they were actually recording or doing commencement speeches, but that's congratulations regardless. You know, what's interesting is it's amazing what a $10 donation to NPR will get you. Like, <laughs> some 10 bucks, you're on the list. It, it's a real easy quid pro quo. Yeah, it's not only that, but you also um, did some fundraising for public radio a while back, I saw from your Twitter, right? Oh, you are truly an e-stalker. I like that. Yes. Um, we did a, a Turntable Health sponsored uh, an NPR fundraiser, which was such a blast because you get to go on uh, NPR and sit in the studio and be like, uh, today's NPR is uh, sponsored by Turntable Health. Turntable Health, a revolution in healthcare. Uh, it, was a, it was a blast. Awesome. So you didn't you know, spin out any freestyle raps or anything with that laugh, uh, burned away the kind of NPR listener that I, I, was donating? I would have uh, I would have burned out their mic because they didn't have the mic with the pantyhose. So when you start <laughs> spitting rhymes, like it just starts clipping the mic, son. Uh, no, actually, what was funny is that we were on during Terry Gross, and she was interviewing a doctor about the microbiome and gut flora and things like that. Mm. And so uh, we were talking about basically we were talking in between Terry Gross talking about poo, which was pretty <laughs> freaking apropos. Yeah. Well, hey, poo is the hot topic right now, isn't it? Uh, it, it is the captain's log, apparently. Yeah, no, everybody's into feces and, and stool transplants and, you know, oh, it's, I, I always say, you know, it's amazing. Like if stool transplants get as big as other transplants, like you could imagine like, you know, flying in, in a helicopter, picking up a piece of poo off the ground with one of those blue doggy bag scoopers and throwing it in an ice chest and flying off to the hospital to transplant it into someone's stat. But uh, I don't think it'll ever be that glamorous, unfortunately. Well, GI always needed another reason to be glamorous besides colonoscopy, so maybe that's what they <laughs> yeah. want to do. I mean, you said they, it, and this is another piece of e-stocking, but your dad said this. There's, there's $5,000 of everyone's colon, right? You know, you, all you have to do is go with a scope and take it out. And, you know, the problem is, like, 
over time with Medicare cuts, that's down to $250. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of, I always tell that story as a, as a way of illustrating the fee-for-service mentality and how, you know, why do people hate lawyers? They hate lawyers because they bill by the hour, partially. There's other reasons you hate them, but, and, and so you never have control and you never have predictability as to what you're going to pay a lawyer. And it always seems like they're motivated to do more stuff, whether or not you need it. Well, the same goes for healthcare. If you have a fee-for-service mentality, uh, first of all, it's going to sabotage trust between you and your patient. There's no price transparency. You're incentivized to do things to people instead of for people, and everything goes haywire. So one of the things we're working on here is getting rid of fee-for-service medicine, in, at least in primary care, and make it a membership model, and that'll change the incentives uh, entirely and also changes the way that physicians see their their jobs you know now they're they're incentivized to keep people healthy and out of trouble instead of treat the sickness that results from you know lack of prevention right um speaking of that actually um this is a good introduction to to what turntable health is uh some of our med students um being the studious hard-working students they are sometimes don't get a chance to really show uh, see what's out there do you mind introducing what turntable health is and why you started this model to change healthcare? yeah i mean it 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 uh it all goes back to kind of you know I was a hospitalist at Stanford for ten years and and it was a gr- it was a great gig for a long time and I, there was a lot of mentorship and you got to teach house staff and you got to work in a team interdisciplinary with social workers and case managers and nurses and everybody and that, that was great and I think we took very good care of our patients and what happened over time is number one I began to notice that about fifty percent of the patients who were admitted to the hospital really didn't need to be there if they just had really impressively good outpatient preventative care. So, you know, people with chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, smoking, obesity, COPD, all these things could be prevented. Um, The second thing is that medicine became more and more corporatized, even though everyone gave lip service to evidence-based medicine and all the other things. So it it began to sort of lead to a lot of, uh, a lot of burnout. And I think what, um, what I, what I wanted to do, you know, and when I was given this opportunity to come to Las Vegas, uh, Tony Shea is the CEO of Zappos, um, the online shoe company, and he was revitalizing downtown Las Vegas by spending about $350 million of his own money um, to sort of curate the development of tech, the arts, education, small business. And he asked me to kind of look into, well, how, what, if you could do medicine better, how would you do it? And, you know, we knew each other for a long time, and, and um, so it was like having a fairy godfather come down and say, okay, if you could fix healthcare, how would, how would you do it? Here's a little money, figure out how to do it. And that's when, you know, it, you know, moved from the Bay Area, came here and just started working on it. And what we ended up with was Turntable Health. Um, Turntable Health is a primary care company that collaborates with another primary care company named Iora Health, I-O-R-A. They're out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, run by a Harvard guy, a Harvard doctor. And, and the, the, the innovation here is, is it's threefold. It's very simple. The first is get rid of fee-for-service health care, fee-for-service reimbursements in primary care. So it's a business model innovation. So make it a flat membership fee like a gym. Uh, And sort of sub-innovation is that is is allow almost anybody to use that. So individual patients can pay retail $80 a month for open unlimited access with no co-pays, no other obstructions to care. Uh, an employer could pay a slightly lower fee because of the volume discount to take care of their employees. And a health plan could pay to take care of people on their insurance plans. So open it to everybody, get fee-for-service out of it, and for that membership fee, we have to keep patients 
not only happy, but healthy. And if we don't, the employers, the health plans, they see that and they walk. So we're incentivized to do the right thing. Taking away co-pays removes obstructions to care so that patients will want to come and see us when they're well as, when, as well as when they're sick. And what it allows is it allows us to do things that fee-for-service doesn't allow. For example, telehealth visits, which are very difficult to bill for in a fee-for-service environment. We include them for free because uh, why wouldn't you want to Skype with your patient or text with your patient or, um, you know, do Morse code with your patient? However they want to communicate, if it keeps them healthy and happy, it's good for us, right? And then classes. So including classes on, you know, yoga, meditation, nutrition, preventative care. We have a teaching kitchen. We have a yoga studio. All those kind of things are included for the price. The second innovation is the sort of care culture and model because in, in the current system, it's very hierarchical. Uh, there's a sort of a the, – the doctor is the – all the, all the responsibility and burden falls on the doctor, paperwork, administrative stuff, everything else. So first of all, we strip away a lot of the administrative stuff by getting rid of insurance billing. So already we've saved you know 10 to 30% of our overhead and hassle. And then we create a team. So we have um, doctors, nurses, licensed clinical social worker doing the behavioral health stuff, and health coaches who are drawn from the community, trained up by us, and they're hired for their empathy and their emotional intelligence and their bedside manner, so to speak. So they... Um, uh, they end up comprising a team that supports every element of the care so that the doctor gets to practice at the top of their license. Um, and the patients love it because they have this whole support structure family that's taking care of them. So the, the health coaches go running with patients. They go shopping with patients. They email and text with patients. They're motivating patients. They're doing the heavy lifting of sort of developing relationships and chronic disease management and all of that. So it's this team-based thing where they huddle every morning and they talk about all the patients and then they talk about all the patients who aren't coming in that day but that they're worried about and they reach out to them proactively. This is what preventative medicine really should be about and that collaborative culture is what it, it, we don't really train for that in medical school. So it's a different way of doing you know, doing the culture of healthcare. So that's the second sort of innovation that we try to do at Turntable. And the third is the technological side knowing that most electronic health records and technology are designed around the insurance uh, model where you're doing fee-for-service and it's basically a glorified insurance billing platform. Take away the fee-for-service and suddenly you can create an electronic health record that's designed by clinicians around their workflow to actually take care of patients in a collaborative way to identify people at risk in a population and reach out to them proactively. So true population management. And um, so we did. So Iora has built their own electronic health record that does this. It's written in plain English. Patients can read it. Um, in every room in our clinic, there's a screen that, that shows the EMR uh, screen as the physician or the health coach or the, or the social worker is typing into it. So it's totally transparent to the patient. And with those three innovations, we think we've figured out a way to fix primary care. And if you fix primary care, by extension, you can really ripple out throughout the rest of the system because you could probably do 80% of what you need to do in primary care and then use it as a model for specialists, hospital care, et cetera. So that's basically what we're trying to do at Turntable Health. We built our first clinic in downtown Las Vegas. It opened in December. We have 800 patients so far. And uh, our patient satisfaction scores are through the roof. And we're just excited to start expanding. No, that's very great. And so when you say you first, does that mean there's uh, ambitions to expand throughout the rest of Nevada or potentially out of state? Because a lot of the issue is that with healthcare, a lot of it's state specific. It depends on what this governor thinks for Medicaid expansion or what this health plan thinks uh, by that state. Um, do you have ambitions to someday expand this model um, outside of, uh, of just Las Vegas? 
Yo, my ambitions as a rider. Didn't Tupac say that? Did I just call him Tupac? That's like, <laughs> that's like a 70-year-old like retired surgeon. We you know can that edit rapper? that out to preserve your street cred. <laughs> <laughs> so as Tupac said, there are many ambitions. Uh, so for us, we want to start in a place that most needs it, which is Las Vegas. And actually, we did take advantage of the quirks in the system here. For example... Um, Obamacare and the ACA came along. We said, cool, let's partner with uh, the not-for-profit Nevada Health Co-op, which is an insurance company that's um, entirely not-for-profit, created under the sort of Obamacare loan uh, strictures. And they use us. uh, They pay our membership fees for certain people on certain plans that they have. And it's been a tremendous way to serve people on the exchanges. So people can use federal subsidies to use us, which means now we're seeing people who could never afford this level of health care before. Our goal, though, is to get it right here and then scale it uh, basically everywhere. So, if, uh, you know, Turntable Health as a model, as a brand, as a sort of, uh, hey, not only can we do healthcare right, we can prevent disease and we can have fun in the process. Doctors and staff and, and providers love to work for us because the culture is right and patients just it's synonymous with really good care where you have a team that's looking out for you. That's the sort of brand and the business we're trying to build. Um, and again, our, our goals are sort of national. That's very, very cool. Um, and so you, you went from being a hospitalist to this guy who's doing all sorts of preventative medicine and primary care level. Almost, it's almost at this point like public health, to be honest. Um, and how did you make that shift from being someone who's just focused on the sickest patients in the hospital that you have to provide coverage for to just code, like handling entire populations almost uh, to be honest, turntable health sounds a lot like what the promise for accountable care organizations where everyone pays them a set amount of money per patient and uh, they in turn take care of them and make sure that they're healthy and they don't have to use that many re- uh, resources. Um, do, you, do you mind going into that? Did you previously have a public health experience or did you just find the right people and have the right experiences to, to put that into play? Oh, this is a good question. So, okay. I had no experience in this. All I saw were the sickest people in the hospital, and I saw the failures of good prevention. And uh, completely unqualified in a traditional sense to do this. And I think that was that's the secret to doing it in a way that's actually going to work. Because you come in without a lot of preconceived notions. All you know are what the problems are. And you have clinical experience to say, you know what, okay, I get how the system works, especially on the, on the sick care side. So... With the accountable care organizations, it's so interesting because they give lip service to all these same things. Um, they are top-down mandates like, okay, take a group of physicians and make them behave this way. Good luck. Okay, that, that it's destined to struggle because you, my feeling is that you come in with a fresh look and you build it from scratch driven by clinicians, not by administrators or government or industry. It's driven by physicians and clinicians. That's the only way it's going to succeed, and you build that culture. Without the culture, okay, where physicians know they're coming to work every day entirely for the patient in a team environment where they're supported, where the goal is to do the right thing for the patient and not worry about dollars and cents and money and those kind of things because those things will all fall into place if you just take care of the patient. It's very hard to take a group of physicians who are practicing in the old system and tell them, okay, you're an accountable care organization now. We are going to give you a chunk of money and try not to spend it all. If you don't spend it all, you get to keep the savings. Like that, that is not going to necessarily encourage culture change. It's going to encourage people to figure out ways to game the system so that they can keep some of that money because that's just the way it goes. So our feeling is, is very strongly that these kind of top-down mandates 
patient-centered medical homes, accountable care organizations, they're not going to work for the same reason that an idiot hospitalist could come and start a, start a business trying to change primary care. You have a fresh look and you're doing it from scratch with people who are smart. So Iora, they've been thinking about this for a long time and they have an amazing culture, an amazing approach. And so leverage their brilliance at operating these clinics, their electronic health record, which is also brilliant, and their ability to find the right people. And synergistically, you can do a lot, especially when you have our skills at being able to spread the word, being able to build uh, specialty networks, being able to think about how hospital care is going to look in a model like this, which is very exciting. Um, it's, a, it's a really good recipe for actually being able to do it right. No, that definitely sounds um, like it's a, it's a very powerful model. And it, it sounds like a really a big inspiration because um, the trends – over the past decade, I mean, at one point there was a spike in, in medical students who wanted to do primary care when they thought they would get more power because HMOs were uh, becoming stronger and stronger. Um, but then all of a sudden it dropped back into everyone going to the subspecialties because of a financial reason. Um, do you think that models like this and the way that uh, physicians or um, medical students see public health and medicine is that there's going to be a bigger shift back into primary care and back into taking care of the patients on, on a, on a uh, patient-physician relationship? Or do you think that um, this will just be for the few keen um, medical students who really have that passion? My ambitions as a provider. That was, that was the song I was thinking of. My ambitions okay. as a provider, yeah. Uh, Okay, to your question. Um, here's my thought on this. Okay, I didn't do primary care because when I was leaving medical school, I felt the same way. Like, how am I going to pay off loans? Um, it looks like a miserable job where you're seeing 30 patients a day and then you're drowning in paperwork. Um, and even though I loved general internal medicine uh, and, and that venue, I knew that that was not a viable way to have a life. And what I think is happening now is for the first time since the 90s when they were talking about this and they were wrong, um, for the first time we see an opportunity to go from, you know, so this fee-for-service to fee-for-value. And in models like ours, we're actually providing a place where people can, again, you're practicing at the top of your license. You're not bogged down with administrative nonsense. You get paid well and you're able to take care of patients without all the crap. That, to me, is a huge opportunity for students. When I go around the country talking uh, about this, students are, the, are most passionate about what we're doing because they see it as a light at the end of the tunnel and an opportunity to practice the type of medicine they want to practice. Not, I mean, obviously, not everyone wants to do primary care, but the ones who do want to be able to do it in a way that's sustainable, gives them a life, and allows them to feel like they're practicing the way they went into medicine to practice. Um, so this is one model to do that, and I think um, now is the best time in, in sort of recent history to think about primary care because the models like ours are going to are going to flourish and it'll be a great way to practice that um that is very true and on to your point about the whole administrative burdens and uh and and the technology hindering the patient's ability i mean as an undergrad i i was able to shadow general internal medicine interns and to be honest when i was there uh, we ended up quantifying this it ended up that they only saw patients for eight percent of the day and the rest of the time, I think 60% was actually spent sitting in front of the computer putting in notes or looking into, the, into progress or checking on labs. Um, it just absolutely seemed to just grind them down because they couldn't stay in the hospital more than 16 hours, but they still had the same amount of paperwork, which means that patient time was just squished um, to yep. the side. Um, yep. And so 
I mean, it's, it's no wonder that you see all these reports saying that more and more there's increasing burnout amongst providers. And you, you yourself had this experience. So do you mind talking um, and giving some advice to medical students, interns, residents on, on detecting burnout and what to do about it and how to channel um, a direction so that they, they can perhaps see the light at the end of the tunnel or, uh, or cut it off before it gets too bad and they decide yeah. to forgive medicine? You know, I mean, burnout is one of those things that you, you can suffer multiple times in your career at different stages. Like I suffered it in medical school. I suffered it again at the end of residency. I suffered it at the end of my career as a hospitalist at Stanford. It, it, it's something that, I mean, you know when it's happening because you become, I mean, there's all kinds of signs and symptoms. But the truth is, what's the etiology of it? The etiology is you're asked to do more and more with less and less. You don't feel supported. You feel like you're not doing what you're put on this earth to do. And when that starts to happen, you disengage, you know, th things start to happen. And, and in healthcare, in medicine, it's, it's actually a serious crisis because we have the second highest rate of suicide of any profession. And so, so many people know other physicians who've killed themselves uh, that it's not even funny. And, and so, recognizing it is a, is a whole field in itself and it, there's a lot of smarter people than myself. I think the truth of the matter though, my, my advice is, when you start feeling yourself getting burned out, you need to step back and you need to think, okay, what is it in my job that, that I really hate that's not that, – that's coming in between me and patients? Because it's usually that. It's usually something's obstructing your ability to take care of patients. Um, and if it's the patients themselves, then you need to look at, okay, maybe this is not the right fit for me. Maybe I need to go into something where there's less patient contact because for some people, that it's so draining that people have so many problems, they take them on as their own, and that in itself is a difficulty. So it's very personal, it's a very specific thing. For me, it was purely, there was so much administrative crap and computer crap and, and stuff getting in, in between just me being able to sit in a room and talk to a patient, which is what I liked, um, that it became, you know, the job became undoable. And it was the point where I wasn't going to, you know, my daughter, I wasn't going to let her go into medicine and and uh, anyone who'd listen, I'd tell them how bad it was. And, and that was no way to, to have a career, right? So I was lucky enough to be able to say, okay, this isn't working, so I'm going to try something crazy. And I was given an opportunity, opportunity to do that. But I think many physicians in my position would have not taken the opportunity because of inertia, because of fear, because of this, I, this desire for security. And I think that's 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 what harms a lot of docs is they're not able to unplug from situations where it's really bad. Uh, they just move on and say, you know, if I just get through this month or this year, it'll get better. I don't know that that's the right answer. I think you have to just say, you know what, this isn't working. The nice thing about healthcare and medicine is I tell people who are going to into med school, you know, they're like, oh, should I do it? All the docs say I shouldn't do it. I go, absolutely, you should do it. There's always something in healthcare if you're passionate about um, something in the medical space that you can do. You'll find your niche. The tricky part is you will be suckered into doing something you're not passionate about. And when that happens, you got to recognize it and get yourself out of that situation. Don't go along for the ride um, and wake up one day finding out that you're totally burned out and you're a zombie. Um, so, you know, be vigilant, be aware. And, and it's tough because they make us make decisions about our careers at the most stressful times in our lives when we're the most burned out. Well, what are you going to do for, um, especially figure it out in, you know, third and fourth year of med school when you're really stressed, what are you going to do for your fellowship? Oh, figure it out in your second year of residency when you're just totally burned out. It makes no sense at all, right? The other thing I would say is take time off. Take a year and travel or work in a company or do something different to remind yourself 
of what you're really passionate about. And you may find, I did this after residency. I was so burned out on clinical medicine that uh, I just took a year and worked for a couple of startups. And what was interesting in that experience is I saw kind of what was going on outside of the health, the direct healthcare space. And I realized, holy crap, I miss taking care of patients. Like I knew it, right? You know, in a year I was like, I got to go back to the hospital. I, I, I really miss it. And that helped me for the next 10 years, you know, to understand what I wanted to do. So take that time and that space to, to find out what it is you, you want to do. And that'll help you avoid those sort of burnout prone situations. All right, that's, that's some really great advice, and I'm sure that a lot of the uh, medical students listening in um, will really value that. Um, I mean, if, if they're really interested in pursuing some innovative primary care models, um, are they able to do that in, in medical school? Like, do you guys offer rotations with, via you, your, your company with Turntable or via Irora, or is this right now just limited because of, of the startup nature um, that you guys aren't able to accept anyone at this point yet? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people ask this. We get approached by a lot of medical students um, wanting to do rotations. And the truth is right now, given our startup status and the fact that we need to be as productive as possible, we tend not to take medical students uh, at all. But we do have a, a rotation through Iora for second and third year residents in internal medicine who are interested in uh, new models of primary care. And, and there's a a rotation, uh, we have people from Brigham and Mass General coming through, and we also have um, a fellowship that IORA does um, for people who are, who are interested in this space. So those are for more advanced trainees. Um, eventually, as we get more volume and, and get our footing right, uh, medical students will, will, will love to have them through. And in fact, one of the things we're going to be doing soon is uh, collaborating with a, a local pharmacy school to get a pharmacy attending and a pharmacy student in the huddle every day. Um, on, on site, and I think it would just be a tremendous part of the team. So, just expanding how we interface with the team, with students, and all that—it's a real great opportunity for students to see kind of the future of where you know healthcare can go. All right, thanks so much. Um, so, I mean, now that we really talked about some heavy level burnout, you know, starting a company, um, we we usually like to end the podcast with something a little bit lighter. Um, so. Uh, I'm not going to bring in any of your rap battles or any of the, the West Coast, East Coast rivals you have with Dr. Oz, but uh, <laughs> I, I'd rather not get dragged into that and become, you know, become a casualty of that. So uh, I'm just going to ask you a would you rather question. And so the question for this is, would you rather have hiccups for the rest of your life or feel like you need to sneeze and not be able to for the rest of your life? Whoa. This is a valid question. I think uh, I'd rather have both at once because the process of hiccuping uh, uh, while needing to sneeze would be one of those weird paradoxical moments that you could at least cogitate on. You know, one of the ways of dealing with burnout is to be mindful and meditate and those kind of things. And I can just imagine paying attention to the sensations of hiccuping while feeling like you need to sneeze it, on a metaphysical level. It's just it's mind alteringly awesome. So sign me up for both. Got it. All right. Well, thanks so much. Um, if any of our listeners want to find you on social media such as Twitter or YouTube or I don't, I don't know. What else do you use? Use Facebook? Dude, everything. Okay. Uh, except for I just I don't understand Tumblr because it's weird. So if you go to uh, uh, ZDOGGMD.com, ZDOGGMD.com, that's my website. It's got all my social media there, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, all of that jazz, Instagram. Uh, and um, – and check it out. Sign up for our email list. Watch our videos. Uh, go to turntablehealth.com to learn about turntable health. 
And you can shoot us messages through either. Uh, I'm just Z-U-B-I-N at TurntableHealth.com. And uh, best of luck to everybody in the game. Yo, it's to be sold, not to be told. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kevin. The H&P Podcast is a podcast by students for students. We're looking to evolve with you. So feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, Tumblr, via the show notes, or on the in-training website. If you like us, please consider subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. The H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at vocalisnetwork.wix.com slash listen.